This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 9th, 2015. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Talia Berkowitz discusses the benefits of a math app for kids. And Catherine Matisik is here with some of our latest online news stories. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have Katherine Matisik. She's here to talk about some recent online news stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the effects of radiation on animal populations. Wild tales from the exclusion zone around Chernobyl abound. I've heard of six-legged horses, and I've heard that it's not dangerous to go there. Basically, the internet is rife with myths and legends about this place, but researchers are trying to understand what actually happened to the animals around Chernobyl. Catherine, what's the setup for the latest study? The latest study on animal populations in Chernobyl, where a nuclear reactor exploded and sent a plume of radiation over Europe in 1986, relies on data from one side of the Belarus-Ukrainian border, where the explosion took place. Basically, scientists in Belarus counted animal tracks in the snow for two years. They also counted animal numbers from helicopter flyovers in the decade after the disaster. So looking across all these different numbers and these different years, what did they find out about the animal populations in the exclusion zone? Well, when they analyzed the data, they found somewhat counterintuitively that radiation didn't destroy the animal populations. There were just as many animals living in highly contaminated areas as there were in areas with less contamination. In fact, mammal populations actually rose after the accident, suggesting human activity like hunting and forestry and even agriculture kept wildlife numbers low before 1986. This makes it sound like removing people and adding radiation was a plus for the animals. Well, the researchers don't like putting it that way. It's not so much more radiation, but fewer humans that seems to be making the difference. 
Before the explosion, hundreds of thousands of people lived in the zone. Now, nobody lives there but a handful of scientists. So from a population perspective, humans seem to be worse for wildlife than nuclear fallout. And what about the six-legged horses? Isn't radiation causing mutations in animals there? Of course you come back to six-legged horses, (laughs) Sarah. Unfortunately, that's where we get back to the bad news part of the story. Uh, While radiation might be indirectly good for these groups of animals, driving away humans who would otherwise kill them, individual animals still have it rough. Radiation damage is very real, and in addition to those suspected six-legged horses that you mentioned, other studies have shown that birds living in the zone have smaller brains. And to put one more twist on the story, which again took place on the Belarusian side of the border, scientists working on the Ukrainian side actually found that higher levels of radiation meant fewer mammals. Next up, we have a story on kitty contraception. Here in the U.S., millions of cats and dogs are euthanized every year. Population control for these animals is incredibly important, but there are some drawbacks to the current methods. Right, Catherine? That's right, Sarah. The main method in place right now is spay and neuter surgery, which can cost hundreds of dollars per animal. That's unaffordable for many, even in the U.S. But in the developing world, the problem is worse. Packs of feral dogs roam places like India and China, where they're responsible for thousands of cases of rabies every year. Rounding them all up and sterilizing them through surgery sounds like a nice idea, but it's just too expensive to be practical. And what we're talking about today is actually a birth control vaccine, which the theory and the practice has been around for a while, uh, like the ones used to control deer populations. How do they work, and how is this new one different? That's a great question, Sarah. The vaccines that you're talking about have been in force since the late 1980s, when some enterprising scientists came up with a new way of controlling wild horse and deer populations. They hit on a couple of different methods, but two of them stuck. One was a vaccine that makes the body attack the membrane that covers eggs. Another one was something called Gonicon. Gonicon is also a vaccine, but it works in a slightly different way. Instead of attacking the eggs, it interrupts the production of sex hormones. The vaccine works wonderfully on deer, prairie dogs, and even kangaroos, but it falls short in cats and dogs. They seem to need a booster shot every few years to keep it working. The new vaccine bypasses the booster shot by turning the body's muscles into tiny antibody-producing factories. Muscle cells, which live as long as 10 years, continuously make the hormone-blocking antibodies once they've gotten an injection. Many animal researchers are wondering if this could be the holy grail of animal birth control. Even this new, more permanent version of the birth control vaccine has some drawbacks. Most notably, it does shut down an important hormone. Is that a big problem, and are there any workarounds for it? Well, there could be if researchers could get this egg-attacking vaccine to work in cats and dogs. Unfortunately, that method has not worked in cats and dogs, which are the primary targets of population control programs. Scientists run into a lot of issues when testing vaccines that work in some animals, but then don't work in others. The newest injection, the one that turns muscles into antibody factories, has only been tested so far in mice. Lastly, we have a story on how spiders got their knees. The title of this story right away tells me something I didn't know. Spiders have knees, and that is somehow unique. 
Turns out other arthropods, which includes insects and crustaceans, do not have knees. All those legs and no knees. Kind of sad. Bees don't even have knees. Getting to the science now, the researchers took a little sidestep approach here to the question about spider knees. What were they originally looking for, Catherine? Researchers originally wanted to find out why one species of spider had legs that were long and, well, leggy, and why one species had legs that were short and stumpy. So they looked into a gene known to control leg development in arthropods. It's called the dachshund gene because fruit flies missing it also wind up missing segments of their legs, making them short and funny-looking, kind of like a wiener dog. Hmm. The researchers couldn't find a difference in the dachshund gene between the two spiders, but they did find something intriguing. Both spiders had an extra copy of the gene. It wasn't telling them what was different between these two types of spiders, but maybe it was telling them what makes spiders different from all those other arthropods. What was the extra copy of the gene doing? To find out, researchers looked to see whether it was expressed during embryonic development. The duplicated gene was turned on in the patella region, a different part of the leg than was activated by the original dachshund gene. They localized where the gene was active during development. How did they figure out what it was actually doing? To figure out what the copy was doing, the scientists deactivated the duplicated gene in some baby spiders. The result was baby spiders whose kneecaps were fused completely to their tibias, creating a single leg segment. That's one leg, no knee, no kneecap. That doesn't sound like it would be very healthy for the spider. No. uh, Nymphs without kneecaps had a hard time walking properly, leaving them at the mercy of their cannibalistic siblings who, according to the researcher, really like to eat them. What's more, none of the malformed spiders survive past their second molt. Instead, their gangly, awkward legs got trapped in their exoskeletons and they just couldn't get out. Do all bugs, I mean, in this case, arthropods with knees have this duplication? Well, actually, they don't. And that's one thing that's very intriguing to scientists. What the study does do is show that gene duplication led to a change in the way legs were formed, an insight into the evolution of body shape. What it doesn't do is show how all arthropods got their knees. For example, mites actually have knees, but they don't have this gene duplication. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Catherine? Well, we have full Nobel Prize coverage and stories about lazy worker ants and lakes on Mars. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on a new EU program to match refugees with science jobs and a story on why changes in pot law, marijuana, are creating headaches for farm researchers. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisik is an online news editor for our daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Many people have internalized the idea that they're bad at math from an early age. And once this idea takes hold, the anxiety can get reinforced and even follow people into adulthood. But what if math was treated like a bedtime story, something fun and interactive that parents can do together with their kids for a few minutes every day? Talia Berkowitz discusses the impact of an educational app used at home on children's math achievement over the course of a school year. I'm Suzanne Bard.
Tell me what the motivation was for your study. Previous research from our lab has shown that the amount of number talk parents engage in with their preschool children predicts four- and five-year-olds' grasp of foundational number concepts. And additionally, some of our most recent work has found that when parents who have high levels of math anxiety, so they feel high levels of fear or apprehension about doing math, um, when they report helping their children with math homework more often, those children do worse in school. So let's talk about this math anxiety. I mean, it's no secret that many grown adults have anxiety about math. Does this trickle down to their kids? It seems to trickle down to their kids. One way we think is that if you're high in math anxiety, you might talk to your kids less about math. And your kids are also going to pick up on those attitudes that you have. And so it's possible that you're influencing their attitudes as well as their achievement. Okay, so we're all told that we should read to our kids from an early age, but math is something that we generally leave to schools. Why change that? There is this big push to have parents work on literacy with their children. And there isn't, you know, a message being sent to parents that math is something that they can help their kids learn. But because of our previous work that's shown how important it is for parents to engage with their children around numbers and around spatial concepts that, you know, then also promote mathematical thinking. That's sort of why we have this push to talk to your kids about math, too, because you know that it helps. And we know that when children start out behind in math, that leads to larger gaps in achievement later on. So we think it's really important, especially in these early elementary school years, to start talking about math and transmitting that positive attitudes towards math to your children. All right. Well, that sounds like a noble goal, but how do parents go about that? And I guess that's sort of what your study addressed. This study is evaluating the use of an intervention in the form of a iPad app. And this app is designed for parents to use with their kids to read short stories that talk about different things involving numbers and, you know, just fun topics. And at the end of each story, there are some questions that involve math topics like counting and shapes and problem solving. So we wanted to see how encouraging parents to use this app with their children at home would help promote their children's math achievement over the course of the school year. And one sample story that we have is about whipped cream. So the passage would read something like, whipped cream was invented about 500 years ago and is credited to a bunch of guys with long, unpronounceable Italian and French names. So you can see right off the bat, it's friendly language. It's meant to be engaging and to teach fun new facts. And then one of the sample questions that would go along with that passage is something like, if you can whip two cups of heavy cream into six cups of whipped cream, how many cups of air did you whip into it? And so you can use your fingers to figure that out. You know, there's some multiplication involved, or you could do it through addition. There are different ways to go about solving this problem. And so we want parents to work on it with their kids and, you know, figure out the answers together and make math something fun and approachable. That seems like it would have sort of a draw in itself. But, you know, there's a lot of educational apps out there. Is there much data on the effectiveness of educational apps and sort of the outcomes of using them with children? There really isn't much data out there systematically evaluating the usefulness of these other educational apps. And one thing we did find is for reading apps in particular, previous research has found that when there's all these bells and whistles involved in the apps, it actually can be detrimental to children's learning about reading and things like decoding and stuff like that. So one of the things we love about this app is that it really is basic in nature. So there are very few distracting elements. Um, and it's designed to be used by parents and children together. And so this is based on the known importance of early parental input. So specifically, 
talks about it incorporates the importance of parent math talk for children's achievement. So are some of these bells and whistles like music and the noisy things that we hear on a lot of children's devices kind of assuming that children somehow just love to listen to all this annoying sounding noise? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, just things that pop up or flash and, you know, pull your attention in different directions. And so by having very few of those things in this app, you can really focus on you know, the task at hand, you can focus on talking about math and, you know, whatever the fun topical passage is for that night. Right. I mean, it sounds like it's still fun for kids without having to have all that stuff. So walk me through your study design a little bit in terms of what you were trying to test here. So um, we approached several schools in the Chicago area and recruited families through the schools. And we assigned kids through their classrooms to either a math condition where they received this math app on an iPad or to a reading condition. So we created a reading control version of this app. And instead of focusing on math, the questions focus on reading comprehension. And in the fall, we tested the children on a series of assessments, including this math assessment. And we went back in the spring and again tested the children on the same math assessment. Over the course of the school year, parents were asked to use the app with their children about four times per week. And the nice thing about using an iPad app is that we could track how often people were actually using the app. So we got a wide range. Some people never used the app and some people used it, you know, up to six times a week on average. And we could then look at how frequency of app use related to children's gains on the math assessment. And what we found is that the more parents and children in the math group use the app, the higher children's achievement on a math assessment at the end of the school year. And children who frequently use the math app with their parents outperform similar students in the reading group by almost three months in math achievement at the year's end. Interesting. What about the kids whose parents had math anxiety versus parents that were pretty comfortable with math in the first place? Yeah, so we found that the app was especially beneficial for children of very math-anxious parents. Um, They made the most dramatic gains in math achievement. So when parents didn't engage at all with the math app, we see a large difference in gains between children of high and low math-anxious parents. But when high math anxious parents use the app, even just as little as once a week with their children, that gap went away. And we no longer saw those large differences in games. It seems hard to believe that doing just one thing for a short amount of time once a week would make that much of a difference. How do you account for that? Right. That's definitely one of the things we found most surprising was that using the app so infrequently could help improve children's math performance. Um, And one idea we have is that the app may be giving parents, and especially these high math anxious parents or even parents with less skill or interest in engaging in math, it may be giving them more and better ways to talk to their children about math, not only during the app usage, but also in other everyday interactions. So by sort of demoing fun ways that you can incorporate math talk into your lives, the app might be encouraging people to add that type of talk in elsewhere. Do you plan to like follow up with families over time? Yes. So this study is actually part of a larger five-year longitudinal study, and we're currently following these same students in the hopes of exploring the long-term impacts that using the app can have on children's math attitudes and achievement. So in this paper, this students are in first grade, they're currently entering third grade, and we're still working with those same children. So we're hoping to see how using the app in first grade, and parents are still encouraged to use the app as the study continues, 
but we can sort of track their usage over time and see how that influences map achievement later on. Right, right. Well, it'd be really interesting to see what the long-term results are. And what are some of the take-home messages that you would like people to know about your study? I think one of the biggest take-home messages is that parent input really matters. And, you know, you don't have to be a mathematician to talk to your kids about numbers and to incorporate math into your lives and to make math fun. And, you know, that sends the message to your children that math is something that they can do and that's fun and enjoyable. And that's going to encourage children to want to partake in higher level math courses, hopefully, and, you know, pursue STEM careers, you know, if they feel like this is something for them. So this app is actually available for free. It's called Bedtime Math on iTunes and on the Android Marketplace. And one of the nice things in terms of thinking about how applicable this is to real world situation is that, you know, anyone can pick up this app and it would be useful to them. Thanks for speaking with me, Talia. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Talia Berkowitz and her team write about boosting math achievement through the use of an educational app at home, This Week in Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S.org join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.